Welcome to episode 15 of the Camerosity Podcast, the first ever open source film photography podcast. I am your host, Mike Ekman, and as always, from Gainesville, Florida, Mr. Anthony Rue. Have you completed all of your Christmas shopping yet? No, not yet. And my elf, my uh, emulsive secret Santa recipient is emailing me daily asking, why oh. haven't you sent my gift? Why haven't you sent my gift? <laughs> I wanted to say, oh, hold on. Hold your horses. Uh, from Sydney, Australia, where it's a lot warmer than it is by me, Mr. Theo Panagopoulos. How are you doing there, Theo? Very good, thanks, Mike. I'm very excited to be here. All right. And then finally, from Yellow Springs, Ohio, Mr. Paul Reibel. Did any of those tornadoes that hit Kentucky come near you? No, we we were we were very fortunate. We had a little rain, but uh, no high wind or anything. So it's yeah, that's good. Here in Indiana, it passed south of us too. Uh, we're back with an all-new episode now that we record every other week that gives all of you extra time to think of things to talk to us about. Remember, we have no scripts or any clue of what we will be talking about each week. We need you for that. As always, the call lines are open and anyone can join in the discussion. Looks like we already have some people uh, waiting to talk to us, so let's open up the doors and uh, get everybody here. All right, looks like we have uh, Barbara Deloney. Hey, Robert, how you doing? Okay. Welcome back, man. That's uh, that was a heck of an episode you were on a couple weeks ago. So it's always uh, glad to have yeah, you back. Fun. Yeah, it's good. Uh, we also have Miles Lieback again. Hey, Miles, how you doing? Doing well. Good to see you again. Excellent. Uh, David Goldberg has returned too. David was on the show two weeks ago, uh, and it's good to see him back. How you doing there, David? Good to see you. All right. Uh, looks like we have two more people in the waiting room. So let's just keep opening this door and see what happens. All right, is that Bill Smith? That's it. Hey, Mike. How's it hey, going? Bill. How you doing? It's Monday night. It's dark outside. It's winter. Well, it's almost winter. Great. I, I'm just, I like, first well, time I've been on this, so yeah. I'm probably that's okay. That's fine. Uh, we have Mark Peterson too. Welcome, Mark. Oh, thanks. Sorry, I was just trying to figure out. I had to press the join. Oh, that's okay. Yeah, no, we had a waiting room. We had to let you in. Um, yeah, Mark Peterson. I'm from Denver, Colorado. All right, Mark. Mark, welcome to the show. Uh, looks like uh, this is the first time you've participated. Have you listened to some of the previous episodes? Uh, I have. I've listened to all of them, including the two from the Classic Lenses podcast. Yes, I was actually talking to Johnny today. I was like, dude, what's up, man? You got to join our show again. He's like, I want to come. I want to come. I'm busy. He's being domesticatified. For those who don't know me, my name is Bill Smith. I'm from the classic camera revival, the little podcast that could. <laughs> yeah, I was on, uh, I was, you interviewed me. Geez, it's been over a year now. Uh, uh, almost a year. It was, it was a blast. Yeah, yeah, that was fun. Yeah, I've, I've been on your show. I've been on a couple different other ones, classic lenses, of course, a couple of times. It's always great to talk to different people. But yeah, we have we have Bob Rodoloni. Uh So you know, we know Bob was on the show a couple weeks ago. David was on the show a couple weeks ago. If if anybody has ever you know purchased something online and had it show up with really really crappy packaging, you know, maybe somebody sticks like a like an exact or something in a bubble envelope and had it damaged. Um, I had the exact I opposite happen. Got a story for you. Go for it. Go for it. I'll tell you my opposite story. I bought, I bought a black. Was it this year or last year? No, it's a lot. Yeah, my. Maybe last year. Anyway, so I was on a tear with Nickermats, and I ordered a black at Nickermat FT2 from an eBay seller in California. Gentlemen, it was it was basically black Nickermat FT2, and it came with a third-party telephoto zoom lens, 80 to 200, what have you. Well, the package sat in a where a U.S. Postal Service warehouse in Los Angeles for almost a month, probably because of a, a COVID outbreak, so it wasn't going anywhere anytime fast. By the time it showed up at my place, 
I noticed something a little strange. Uh, the lens was slightly crooked. Then I realized somehow the weight shifted and the whole lens mount came off the camera by about four or five millimeters. The whole mount just detached from the body? Almost, yeah. Oh, wow. I got a parts body if someone wants it. <laughs> Probably this side of the border because it's going to cost me more to ship it than what it's worth. But, you know, it was sad because it was in great shape, but it was like the seller, I was just about ready to just, you know, part of me was just, there's a myth of the nice Canadian. If we're ever pissed, run as fast as you can. <laughs> I was, yeah. I was, because I shipped the camera with the lens mounted to it. Yeah. Don't do that. <laughs> just don't yeah. do that. The only time I've done that is if, like, I have the original case, like if it's got the EverReady case, so you can kind of all put oh, yeah. it all self That's together. Fine. But, but usually, yeah, you if it's an SLR or any kind of rangefinder, you usually want to dismount the lens and, and wrap it separately. That's frustrating yep. too, because you know, even if you end up getting your money back, sometimes you just wanted the camera. Like it's it's yeah, fine. Yeah, that was there. I was like, can I fix this? And I I I, the, I don't know. Hey, people here know Gary Clennon, Lens Medic YYC. I consulted him. And he says, nah. Ain't gonna happen. I said, okay. <laughs> well, so let so me know my, if you get a parts body. <laughs> yeah. So my opposite story was a, a reader might say it was another donation. A guy said he had some Olympus OM bodies. You know, he had some telephoto lenses and some teleconverters. You know, mostly stuff that really wasn't worth a whole lot. But he had two OM one bodies, and I have one OM one, but it's messed up. So I was like, all right, you know, I could use a good OM one body. And he's like, well, I'll just send you all this stuff. I was like, all right, cool, thanks. So I get this stuff and, you know, you know, you kind of like this mental image of what size box is going to show up. But in this case, the box was like three times as big as, as like I pictured. So I'm like, well, maybe he threw bonus stuff in there. You know, that's kind of exciting. And it's like, no, you're just really, really good about packaging it. But he wrapped everything in not just bubble wrap, that kind of like cling wrap bubble wrap, you know, that like sticks to itself. And then he taped, put like packaging <laughs> tape on each thing. Then he taped the things together in like this huge ball. So like I, I get this this box of popcorn peanuts and I pull out, I'm not kidding, this ball was larger than a basketball of just camera parts, you know, individually wrapped, <laughs> clean wrapped. So the the problem is is like there's really no way. Like you don't you you don't even know where to start peeling this thing apart because half of it's packaging tape too, on top of the cling wrap bubble wrap, of which he used a gratuitous amount. I mean the dude probably used thirty dollars in packing material on this. So it's like I'm taking scissors. But it's like you don't actually know where the bubble wrap ends, ends and things begin. So it's like you don't want to start arbitrarily stabbing things, you know, and you don't want to start tearing because that's when you get like the rare lens that just goes shooting across the room. I, I cut my finger. I think it took me like 20 minutes to pop this thing open. So while I don't ever want to like, you know, sound ungrateful because obviously the guy really, really took packaging it seriously. But uh, that's, that's a, I think a funny example of the opposite problem. Yeah. It's, it's like when you order a filter sometimes and, and you get, you know, a whole box coming and it's, it's all packaging and there's peanuts in there and there's this tiny little filter in the middle. That, that always amazes me yeah. as well. So, Have you ever uh, opened a package and missed something? And like, I thought like there's oh, a yeah. tiny filter in the corner and you don't even know it's in there. I have, I have actually. And, um, you know, we're pretty good with recycling and I've actually happened to go back to put some more recycling back into that bin and notice this, this little thing in the corner. And it was, <laughs> and it was actually a little filter on the camera. I had once and it was because they pack put so much stuff in there and they had the, that one had the shredded newspaper. 
Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. Which, which is always a good one to try and find things through because you've got to literally dig your fingers through. Yeah, that's frustrating. Howard Stanley, welcome to the show. Good to be back. We're I talking. Hey, Howard. How's it going? Good. Hi, Bill. I've never had a, a really badly packaged camera, and, and I've bought and sold a lot. Yeah, Paul, Paul's got that down pat. You know, he ships a lot of stuff, and he uses the nice medium eBay boxes, you know, that would fit something in real nicely. So it's neither neither too much nor too little. I shipped a 300-2.8 Canon EF lens this morning. Um, it's like an eight-pound eight, eight pound lens that was in a – it came to me in a lightware case you know, a shoulder saw case. So I packed yeah. it. I put the lens, I wrapped the lens up in a plastic bag, put it inside the lightware case, put the lightware case inside a box, bubble wrap around it, and then double boxed that. And it's only gone 200 miles. Yeah. <laughs> so it's going to make it. Air on the side of caution. Yeah, I, I, my last camera purchase of the year is a Topcon RE2. That's coming from East, from Howard Sandler's neck of the woods. Refresh my memory, Howard. Where are you at again? I, I'm in Ottawa, the capital Ottawa, okay. of Canada. Oh. So we have two can- Canadians. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm about a five-hour drive west down in Toronto region. Hey, can I change the subject? I, I, I want to do it before while Robert, because I meant to ask him this question the last time he was here, and I didn't get around to it. Okay. I have an S2. You got to right. turn off your virtual background. Yeah, I, I, I'll hold it in front of me. Can you see it, Robert? It's, yeah. It's a Leica. It's an Nikon version of a view. And my understanding was this was made for the Nikka cameras. Is that correct? Or no? There's, okay. So it, no, it, they, they made like, if it says if it says twenty four by thirty six on the side. It does. Okay, that's a later one that was made during the night. That was made for the Nikon, but not necessarily Nikka. Um, they did probably sell them for Nikkas, you know. Okay. Yeah, Montgomery Wards used to even sell that in their catalogs. It was the exact same item from the drawing. Okay. They made those going all the way back to the Nikon one. And the first ones are actually marked 24 by 32. And then they went to 24 by 34. And then they went to 24 by 36. But they always made Leica versions also the whole way. In other words, the Leica version will have like 7.3 or 9.0, which are right. lenses Nikon never made. So that's yeah, one this, way. This one is marked 7.3. This one is marked 7.3. And that's yeah. what got, and also 85. All right. So yeah. So what it is, it, it's 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 playing to the market for Leica users or Canon users who had those focal lights, but you can still use it on your Nikon because it's got sure. eighty five on there. So yeah. it's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. It it came with a it came with an S two. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. And a, a thirty five three five. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. I can see that you had the you had the first style thirty five three five, the older style. Uh, yeah, and the lens and the the finder both are marked made in occupied Japan. It is made. Is, does it have an no. M in front of the serial number? No. Um, no, no, uh, on, the nine, body, right? on the body or the lens, the, the lens, the, the, you know, the, uh, finder, the finder have an no, M the finder does not have an M. Does it have nine? Starts with a nine, right? It's a nine. Yeah. Okay. That's right. And then the, the body would be, what is it? An S body? It's an S2. Okay. S2. All it's right. It's a 617 number. Yeah. Middle production, middle production S2. Yeah. But the lens was actually uh, also marked made in Occupy Japan on the well, back. The lens from just looking at it is, it's too early for an S2. Okay. In other words, that was made during... The 1M and S era. What's the serial number on that? The serial number on the lens is uh, 910. Okay, that's 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 the second run that's made during the occupation. And that was being sold with M's and early S's. Wow. So that really is too old for the body, but it still works. It's no problem that way. It's just vintage-wise, it's not the same. 
I, I thank you. I, I didn't know that. That's interesting. So yeah, I want to get some interesting lenses that they made in 35 millimeters. So that would, they started making those about 1948 and continued making okay. them through about 51. Then they changed the mount around. Well, I, cool. I some time ago, I, I also picked up a um, 3525 in mm -hmm. like a thread mount. Right. And it had a, 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 a bad ding on the front uh, filter ring. Yeah. And the focus was totally jammed up. Yeah. So yeah. I sent it to the repairman that I usually use for these things. And he sent it back, says, I, I can't fix it. It's it's shot, you know. Yeah, and I thought, damage, well, you know. Yeah. So I sent it to Yuxin Yi. And Yuxin said, Yi said, I was just, it just gummed up. He completely stripped it, re-greased right. it, and it's perfect. Yeah. So sure. I got the ding. He didn't want to try to screw around with the ding on the filter ring. Yeah, no. But uh, I've been using it, and it's it's a perfect, just perfect lens. Yeah, and actually, internally, they're not very complicated, actually. Most of those early lenses are not complicated like they are today. But the problem is that the uh, lubricants that they used back in those days were terrible, okay? They were too thick. They may, they use the thicker ones. They make things felt smoother when they were new, of course, when they had the thick. But as time went by, they gummed up. So that's, that's the problem with most of the stuff made before 1955. There's a lot of gumming up from bad lubricant or too much lubricant. Okay, well, thinking, talking about that, let me ask you this. In the 80s on Nikon lenses, I always heard that they were aluminum on aluminum on the helicoid, and that's why they felt so slick when you focused them. There was hardly any drag on them at all. Are well, you? first of all, during the rangefinder era, the first ones were, were brass on brass, which they right. had to lubricate well because that'll bind. Then they went to brass on aluminum, and they had brass on aluminum through most of the reflex era. They might have gone later on. Maybe, you know, they went maybe to the internal focus. They could probably do that, but I don't think you can do aluminum on aluminum. It would, it would go up too easy. Yeah, that's what didn't make any sense to me. So it was probably aluminum I think it's aluminum brass. brass. It's yeah. aluminum brass. That, made, that makes more sense. Yeah, they're helixes. Now, maybe when you get to like the E-series e lenses, the cheapy lenses that were made for the EM, they could be. But the better lenses, they, they did not skimp on that focusing mount, not at all. Because you can buy, you can get their lenses at 20, 30 years old. They, they're smooth as silk. Yeah, right. I hardly ever see a, a Nikon uh, AI or even F-mount lens that has any sort of focus issue. Probably over the years, I've had probably about four or 500 Nikon lenses of one type or another. I had over 300 rangefinder lenses at one time. And... Whoa. I never had one. I had a couple that were frozen from age. It hadn't been used in 20 years or whatever. Right. And you just got to play with them and eventually loosen it up. Otherwise, no, no problems. No. Matter of fact, the really old stuff, the real heavy ones, the heavy brass lenses from 49, 50, 51, or 52 that you could kill somebody with if you hit them with it. <laughs> Those things, they're almost indestructible. They really are. They're almost indestructible. And uh, very smooth. Very smooth. Smooth as mm -hmm. In the beginning, they did better with their lenses than they did with their cameras, with the bodies. Their lenses were much better engineered and built than the bodies were. Okay, the one and the M bodies were no match for the lenses that were put on them. The lenses were better, you know, because they were a lens maker first. But uh, they eventually caught up, of course, with the S and the S2. But the thing is, the lenses were always very well made, very well made. Overkill, actually. They were so heavy, they were terrible. Matter of fact, David Douglas Duncan's one of his major complaints about the early Nikon optics, they were too heavy. He complained mm. that they were too heavy. Wow. Speaking of number one rangefinders and number two cameras that could kill people, I brought something for show and tell. Oh yeah! So oh, so right. I'm I'm holding a Connie Omega six by seven rangefinder. Um, it got I got thinking about it this week because uh, 
Uh, one of the blogs I follow, uh, the online photographer, Mike Johnston, and he sometimes writes about film. He was talking about the so-called Texas Leica, the uh, Fuji 6x7, 6x9 rangefinders. Uh, so they call those the Texas Leica. So these things are bigger and heavier. I think this would be the yeah. Brobdignag Leica, if anything. Uh, it's actually a very fine camera to use. It is. I love the film advance on those. You just pull it out and shove it back in. You're ready to go. Yeah. yeah. Um, there can be spacing issues, and that, that's a well-known thing. But uh, if anything, it, it has to do with the thickness of the backing paper. I think it was designed for one thickness, and uh, modern film backing paper may be somewhat different, or the film base may be somewhat different. Do, do but, that again. Uh, make that make that sound again, Howard. Oh, the, the ka-ching. That's not the kind of camera you want to fiddle with when you're on an airplane, just so you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Karen will get upset. <laughs> My God, he's rocking a shotgun. Yeah. You know is what's it a funny? Or 200 or an M, Howard? Uh, this one is the Connie Omega Rapid. It, it doesn't have the, the uh, dark slide at all. Okay, is that is that a fifty eight millimeter lens on it? Yes, indeed. I I, I used to have both the North, the ninety and the fifty eight, and a second body. I decided to thin out the collection and I sold the ninety because I just have a lot of other cameras that can do that. But th this wide angle lens, it's sharp, corner to corner. At every, I mean, it only opens up to f five point six, but it's sharp everywhere. Um, and the viewfinder is really nice. Uh, the accessory viewfinder for this lens. Um, I use it for uh, infrared, actually, a, a lot of infrared landscapes. That's a beautiful camera. I, a few days ago, I got a, a Graflex XL mm. that, that came in with, it came in, it was a Graflex XL with a Graflex RH50 back, which is a 70 millimeter back. I'd never seen one. And it had a 100 millimeter 2.8 planar on it. Oh, wow. So the camera was trashed. The back was worthless. And so I took it, took made three pieces out of it. I sold the, the back separately, the body as parts, and the lens was perfect. Mm. Uh, so I just, you know, it was worthless as a single camera, but, you know, it was a good deal for parts for, for people that wanted to put something together. Howard, you now, said... I, 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 have a, uh, I have a mentor here in Ottawa, who's uh, Edward Shapiro. He, he's been in photography, especially portrait photography, since the 50s. He would do weddings with uh, Graflex cameras and, the, and then a Linhof. Uh, but uh, he was one of the early adopters when Graflex came out with the XL. And he told me there were a lot of, there were a lot of construction quality issues. Uh, there was plastic used. And uh, they had a big problem that the, the lenses were Rodenstock, fabulous lenses, and they couldn't, they couldn't achieve the tolerances that Rodenstock expected for the the uh, flange to uh, film plane distance and the, the you, you had to send your camera in and have it individually calibrated and adjusted to get the best performance. Yeah. Well, if you remember the way the lens came off on the XL, it was a, a tube. It was some guides and yeah. the guides broke were the, the pins for the guides were actually inside the body and they broke off. Mm -hmm. And that's where the problems were. When they broke off, you could no longer get them to seat properly. Yeah. So it, it was a it was an issue with with that particular camera. Howard, you had said that your Coney doesn't have a dark slide. So when you say that, does it have this dial on the side that opens and closes doors? 
Yes, so it, it does have the you, you need it it closes some blinds. They they look like uh house like of blood, uh, yeah. barn doors. Right. That's that allows you to change the lenses right. with film in the camera, but you can't change film but you can't change film backs mid-roll like some of the okay. later models. Okay, I got you. That's, I think it's right. the I think it's the the M that has that and then there's the the rapid 100 and 200 there there are some slight differences and the backs are not always compatible yeah this is the only one of these i've ever come across so i'm not too familiar with how they all work but uh the reason i ask is my very first time using this camera i had those doors shut uh either either there's no uh safety override to prevent you from doing that or it's broken on this model so i got a whole nice roll of absolutely nothing yeah, no, it's a, there's supposed to be a sh- on mine. The the shutter is locked unless you have it in the uh, open position. Yeah, this one either it doesn't have that feature. It's broken. Go ahead, how Theo. Like compared to the um, the Mamiya press cameras, I mean they're the same similar sort of form factor. Have Have you um, tried the Mamiya ones? I'm just interested to see. What, yeah, I have not. Uh, I, I've never. Uh, I know that they're more flexible because there's even a ground glass back. Uh, some of them yeah. have uh, some tilts and swings on the back. Um, the, the, and you're talking a, about the Mamiya's do? They have that? The Mamiya, the Mamiya's have more adjustments, okay. more backs. Okay. Uh, the, Mamiya's, the Mamiya Super 23 has a, a, a bellows extension on the back. Yeah, yeah well, I, I've got all that. Minor, That's why I was trying to do a comparison. It, it does a minor about, amount of correction, but the big thing is it lets you do close-ups. Because you can use yeah. it as an extension tube. The Mamiya Super 23 and Universal actually are my f- two favorite cameras of all times. I, I got my first one in 1968, and there has not been a day that I haven't owned one since I got the first one. It's, oh, you'll love that. I've got mine sitting right there. Uh, <laughs> is, I can't see if it is. Was it a black one or a silver one? Mine's a silver one. Uh, the one I have currently is a black one. And, uh, they made uh, 50 millimeters, 65, 90, 105, 127, 150, and 250 millimeter lenses. And I think there was a 500, though I've, yeah. I've not ever owned one of those. There's a, there's a set of uh, medium format uh, press cameras. I guess you could call it a press camera or a technical camera, perhaps, that I've been lusting after Uh from Horseman, I think the Horseman 985. There's a few, but the 985 I think is the the uh, the most fully featured. And they they the, I think the lenses are uh, Tokyo Kogaku, if I'm not mistaken, the same people okay. that made the Topcon lenses. Yeah, they're beautiful cameras. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, yeah they're, they're very. They're also very frustrating. They're very easy to get something wrong on these. And yeah. I've shot a whole roll with a dark slide in and I've done all <laughs> sorts of mistakes like that. It, it's, it's, place. but um, you mentioned the, the viewfinder, Howard, earlier on the Kony Omega. Yeah. The, the viewfinder for the 65 on, on this is absolutely gorgeous um, yeah. to look through as well on the, on the Mamiya Super 23. It's, yeah. it's a, it's a, yeah, it, it's almost, yeah, it's almost like widescreen high definition. Now, um, do, do they do they give you multiple hot shoes like on the Connie? There's oh, uh, sorry, cold shoes. There's three accessory shoes on the top. Yeah, this one gives you one on the camera and then the one, one on the on, hand grip. Yeah, on the hand grip, um, which uh, a lot of people complain about this left-handed hand grip, but I actually find it quite handy. I quite like it. It lets me steady the camera quite well. Um, this well, the, way. the Connie, it's not only only a left-handed hand grip. It's it's only a left-handed shutter release. Even without the hand grip, the, the shutter release is actually on the left for the left hand. 
Oh, okay. With this is um, it's on the actual lens, so yeah, is it slight yeah. difference there? Yeah, no. Yeah. This you you could in theory operate. I mean, everybody uses the hand grip, but you you can either reach over and push the button, which is on the camera body, or you could have a thumb operated um, cable release. There's a little slot on the newer version of the hand grip. There is an older version of the hand grip as well. It's not a different model, but. Um, the new one feels a lot better to me. So. Well, the other cool thing about the Mamiya is that uh, in rollbacks, they make them for six by seven or six by nine, and they're 120 or 220. Okay, you've got a six by seven? Six by nine. Six by nine. And yep. uh, then they made a back called a K back that was multiple format. It was 645, and I believe six by six, six by seven, and six by nine. And you advance the film oh. using the red windows on the back. Uh, oh. So you, you went back to the, the Kodak uh, Brownie days to advance the film. Hmm. That's, that's actually, oh. actually what's what a lot of people don't realize too is you can actually interchange the backs on these things with the RB, um, sometimes with an adapter. Some of an them fit straight an on. An adapter, they call it. That would let you yeah. RB and, uh, and also yeah. Graflex backs will fit it. Hmm. That's right. And, and another interesting piece is um, when you actually um, – I'll try and open the back up without sort of is when you actually wind these on, what really amazes me is I'm not sure if people can see here is when you actually do the full, the, the advance, it actually has some sort of train that goes right through to the other side of the back to actually advance the film. Um, even though you're doing it on your right hand, it's actually the left side that's actually, um, that's actually pulling the film across. It's a very long, flat spring. Yeah. And they do, mm. and they do break. <laughs> Oh, okay. Well, I'm going to stop playing with it here for demonstration purposes in that case. Now, here, here's my, my suggestion for an Ekman review would be there's a version of this, which is a kind of like a twin lens reflex called the Connie Omega Flex, I believe, which is almost unobtainium. I like if I look on eBay once in a, once in a while, you'll see one for sale for about twenty five hundred dollars. And uh, they, they actually it's like. They stacked another one on top, took away the rangefinder, and uh, there's a ground glass and then a, a mirror that looks at the ground glass. Isn't that like what's it called, the Goland Flex or something? It's like uh, a the Goland was four by five. The Coney Omega, we refer to it as the Funny Omega Flex. <laughs> there was nothing funny about using it, though. It was a, it was a, it was just absolutely the most miserable experience. It was like trying to take pictures with a Visiflex. Yeah, <laughs> and it was like a monkey trying to, you know, mate with a football. I hate to disappoint you, Howard, but I, I think you—I think you overestimate what I have access to. Okay. <laughs> I, I only get to fondle unobtainium cameras uh, at Iris' house. That's that's, that's as far okay. as I've ever come. But no, I'm really looking forward to shooting this, uh, Connie. Um, in fact, the lens that's on it now is Mark Faulkner's because the lens that came with this one was really badly hazed up. And I was able to shoot it after I figured out how to use the, the barn doors correctly. Uh, but I got this like ethereal, you know, hazed look over all the images. And, and they were cool, but it's like I really, I liked the camera a lot. The viewfinder, the, the rangefinder on it works really, really well. It's, it's very similar to the one in yeah. the Konica rapid uh or sorry the auto s2 it's got mm. uh, not only parallax correction but it's got field correction too so in addition to the frame lines moving down and to the right like you're used to it with parallax the frame lines actually shrink in size 
as you get uh, close focus too. So most 35 millimeter range finders don't do that. Um, but the Konica did that on the S2, the S1.6, I think the S3, uh, and then the, the Rapid Omega has that too, maybe a few others as well. Yeah, I, I, I no longer have the 90 millimeter lens, but if I recall correctly, the there's some inner lines for the one uh, the 180 uh, yes. lens which disappear exactly. when you when you yes. focus closer yes then that true. lens would focus they disappear automatically which yep. is kind of nice that is true yeah they, they pop up when you go like to infinity or you know 20 30 feet yeah. they disappear that's clever theo you had a question didn't you or yeah i had a question um ages ago so i'm going to loop back to when we we're having the the nikon uh, lens discussion um i think paul and uh, robert mentioned that something about the material about uh, aluminium and aluminium or brass from aluminium making a difference in terms of how the lenses actually yeah, how smooth they are etc maybe can we expand on that a little bit because I'm, I'm not really familiar in terms of the material differences based on what metal what year was it robert the, the, i think this has got to be the mid 80s early to mid 80s the lenses had a different feel they weren't damped as much they uh, did change yeah they changed well first of all they changed when they when they started to downsize, okay? When everybody had to downsize in response to Olympus, Nikon had to downsize also. And their lenses were heavy. Uh, they had to lighten them up a little bit. So there were some materials that were used instead of the heavier materials that we were used to. The lenses did get lighter and uh, smaller. So they may have changed some of the internal parts also when they were doing that. I've always, like the stuff from the 60s, as far as shooting goes with, with, the, with F, I, I shot with the F from 67 all the way to like 90, but shooting with the F in the 60s and the 70s with those lenses at that time, there there was no drift. There was no nothing. It was really, it wasn't stiff focusing, but it was firm. You had firm focus, okay? In other words, it wasn't, you couldn't go past your focus because it wasn't that loose. It was nice. And, and, and I used some long lenses with 300s, 400s, 500s and all that. Um, I would imagine that with time, I mean, you'd have to, actually talk to somebody who's familiar with the, with the factory or whatever. I'm sure they had to change some things, but also when you got to around the year 2000 or so, Nikon did something there. The factory called in Sendai, there's a factory in Sendai, which is the one that got flooded out during the tsunami. Okay. And remember that scene with the, with the, the tsunami going across that airport, that was the Sendai yeah. airport. And the Nikon factory was not far from there. Okay. That factory, the Sendai factory was where they made all the D the D series uh, digital cameras, D1, D2, D3, the heavy heavy duty professional stuff. And that's where they made the very expensive professional lenses. Okay, the fast ones and the long ones. That was all made in that factory. Other stuff was made in other factories and also in Thailand and things like this. So the best stuff was coming out of Sendai. Okay, and uh, so you had a, you had a split. You had you got what you paid for. In other words, the more expensive Nikon lenses were built really like they used to be always. And then you had a middle of the road and you had their amateur stuff. So they did do some change. And they had to just for economic purposes, but also for weight. People wanted everything to be lightweight. Well, what do, how do you get lightweight? You got to take something out of it to get lightweight. You know, you got to give something up. So what, what exactly with the Series E lenses did they give up? I mean, aren't they optically the same, but the bodies were lower? The Series E were surprising. They were, everybody was surprised by the Series E's. Um, They're all plastic barrel. As far as the focusing mount goes, I don't know. I don't know what the focus helix is, but the, the barrel itself is almost all plastic, like the camera was. Right. But I remember reading test reports on the lenses, 
And the, the guys who were reviewing the lenses were surprised at how optically good they were, okay? Now, how long it would stay that way, you don't know. I mean, a good lens will be optically good for a long time, no matter how you abuse it. And a lot of Nikon lenses were heavily abused because they were used by pros, okay? And, um, but you could have, I, I had a 200 F4 one time that I literally, I was cleaning it, standing up, I literally dropped it to a concrete floor, okay? It came down like this, hit the floor, and then rolled about five feet. <laughs> so it took me about 10 minutes to get the guts to pick it up, right? So I pick it up, and the first thing I do is I go like this to look through it. Nothing's wrong with the glass. The, the focusing got a little bit stiffer because it was slightly out of round because that was hit first because that was the widest part of the lens. I used that lens for eight more years. <laughs> I never had a problem with it. I don't think you can do that with today's stuff. No. Well, the deal no. with the, the, one eight, the E lenses, the 50 millimeter 1.8 E was a marketing thing yeah. because they, they wanted an EM camera to sell for $129. Yeah. They could not put a 50 F2 on it or a 51.8 AI because it would it would raise the price too much. Yeah, they didn't want to market. They they had to have a, a separate lens. They built they built to the price as opposed to the other way around. Exactly. They built to the price. Yep. Yeah, and, and the e lenses, the 28, 35, 50, and seventy to one fifty, and was, yeah. there was seventy two ten also. I think something like that. Yeah, yeah. Joe DiMaggio was the the. Did you know Joe, Robert? Mm -hmm. He was he worked for for uh, for Joe Ehrenreich. He was, oh, he yeah, was that, the, yeah, I did. I, did. I met the, him once. I met he him was once. the king of professional services, NPS okay. at the time. Joe, uh, Joe loved the E-series lenses, except for the 70 to 150, which he said he put a, a soft focus folder on the end of it and then super glued it so he would never be tempted to use it for anything really that he really cared about. But uh, yeah. the other lenses, he really liked them. They were surprising. Oh, you know, that's, that's, it was just a surprising I, I, result. Everybody thought they'd be garbage, but they weren't. I, I had a, I had several of those, and in fact, the seventy or I think it was seventy to one hundred and fifty uh, was was I thought it was the best actually. I, I made some razor sharp photos, and and most of the reviews thought it was because that was that was a focal length set you couldn't get in the regular Nikon line. It was unique to the E, e series. Uh, the other lens that got slagged by the reviews was the twenty eight, and I I had it. Uh, I used it for a few years. Mind, mind you, I, I used it stop down to F8 at least most of the time, and it was fine. Uh, later, I acquired uh, a regular Nikon uh, 28F 3.5, which is a little better in the corners, wide open. But other, other than the wide open, the Series E one was fine. You guys mentioned Dick Joe Imaggio. I was sometime yeah. in the 70s. Uh, it was a photo show in Long Island, New York, outside of New York and there was a time when the Paul Simon song Kodachrome came out Nikon camera and uh, he he took his uh, Nikon F2 and he threw it on the ground you know, to show how and then he picked it up and he fired the motor hey look it still works <laughs> <laughs> you're talking about DiMaggio yep Dale DiMaggio Joe's crazy he uh, I, I could tell you DiMaggio stories for for a couple hours but I I don't think the statute of limitations has expired on some of them. Yeah, well, I witnessed them tossing an F2 on the, on the ground. <laughs> so, Robert, David, who's speaking now, he used to work for the Camera Barn uh, in oh, New York. Okay. So in he, New York City? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And he knew, once. he knew uh, Joe's, what, grandson? I guess he, he was Gil Emmerich. I think Gil was Jonathan's son. He was the Nikon rep for the New York City area. Yeah, I, I was in that camera barn store a couple of times years back, 
Well, I was on the one on 1272 Broadway. If you know New York, it was across the street from Gimbel's. And then there was one on the 30- one I was in. Did it have a wooden floor? Yeah. Then the I other was one was one, uh, 32nd Street. If you remember Camaro. Oh, yeah. All those when stores. I was there, we hit, a, we hit them all. You know, yeah. we hit every store you saw in all the magazines all those years when you were growing up. Yeah. Right. And they're all right there. Olden's and all of that. You know, yeah, Olden's was, was the biggest surprise. I didn't think we had to you know, walk up, up a flight up of stairs to this story. little place. But yeah. Well, that was my, I was there for 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, then, all those stores are gone. Pretty yeah. much. This is true. They're all gone. I mean, there was Minicam we went to. We went to Willoughby's. We went all over the place. And Minicam, Garden Camera. Yeah. All those Wall Street. 47, 47th Street photo. Yeah. Wall Street was there. Spiracone. I remember going to Wall Street camera. Um, I, was, I, was with, I was with the fellow that lived in New York. His name is um, Fred Krughoff. And he knew the owners of Wall Street camera. He used to do their, their ads for them because he was a graphics artist. So he took me there one day. And I can't remember the man's name, but he introduced me to him. And I couldn't get out for like two hours. He took me next door to where they had all their storage. I mean, what they had in that next door building was just unbelievable. But then after the after 9-11, they had to close up. Yeah, Toilet That was like 9/11. my experience going to the basement at Central, you know, just oh, the, yeah. the boxes and boxes and boxes. Don Flesh's place, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's all yeah. gone now, but he had a lot of cool stuff down there. Well, there was, yeah. there was a store in Columbus, a store in Columbus, Ohio called Chick's Camera Exchange. And Chick was uh, was an old time guy, you know, he'd been in the business and he owned a, a block, you know, in downtown Columbus. Yeah. But you go into his store and uh, he had, a, he would have a Leica 3G in the showcase. And I say, hey, Chick, that's nice. That's nice. He said, oh, no, that's not nice. These are nice. He opens a drawer and there's five or six more in the drawer. And I said, put them out. And he says, no, I put them out. Somebody wants to look at all of them. <laughs> Let him buy this one. Then I'll put another one out. <laughs> yeah. Anyone here remember Lens and Repro in New York City? I remember their ads. I never oh, was yes. there. But... Oh, yes. I, yes. I, my brother and I actually paid a visit to the store about probably a year before they shut down. It didn't have a storefront. So you had to go into an elevator yeah. to go to the store. And the door would, would close one way, but then you had to turn this way and the door would open this way to get in. Yeah. It was just, it was like, you know. You know, the place was, that was yeah, like that. I remember, like, remember. like a three G's. They had like a three jeans in the counter and a couple of them were black. Yeah. Did they have like yeah, back room poker there. games in the back room or something too? Like do, do you remember Ken, remember Ken Hansen photo? You sure. Well, remember Ken Hansen photo? Well, well, Ken Hansen originally started off in the camera bond chain. And Ken Hansen was the same way. You had to go. You had to go up a flight of stairs or two. Yeah. You walked down a hallway and then you went through it, just a, a door. I mean, it wasn't a storefront at all. Yeah, that you was across the street. Like is all over the place, uh, all up and down the wall. Across the street from the Empire State Building, if I remember correctly, it's oh. somewhere right in that area. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. And he was there yeah. that day, so I got to talk to him a couple of times. But yeah, I know Kenny. <laughs> but it was um, it wasn't what I expected. You know, I mean, you never saw a picture in those days. All we had was Shutterbug. All right. So there weren't pictures floating around of all these stores. You didn't know what you were going to see unless they had ads in the, in the national magazines with photographs of what their store looked like. You had no idea what you were walking into. And uh, Olden's was the same way. You go up this flight of stairs in Olden's, you know, where am I going up into an attic? You know, and you turn a corner and there's Olden's. Well, you, you just you just sort of like lessen the repo. It's like, am I going into a drug deal of some kind? <laughs> <laughs> well, Lens and Repro also had the Lens Bank, which they were, uh, they were collecting and uh, – and preserving lenses from the 1800s and early 1900s. Oh, wow. 
and all kinds of glass and things that were were uh, meant to be for you know preservation purposes. So they they had a, an amazing collection of lenses. I am extremely fortunate that not maybe a twenty minute drive from me is a place called Burlington Camera. And it's a family-loaned operation, and it's a camera store everyone on this conversation will fall in love with and going, I have basically, I think a third of my bank account has gone to those people, if not film pros, color film processing, but it's like one day I show up, I see a black Nikon F, eye-level prism with a 6400 serial number. Oh, geez. For 220 bucks Canadian. Wow. <laughs> Granted, the back wasn't original. I think it originally came with a motor drive, but the motor drive was pooched and you know, motor on it. You have to worry about the back. Yeah. yeah. But again, I've got it upstairs. It's gorgeous. I have shot with it. It is. Mm. Did you ever look at the bottom of it to see if that had the rocker for the motor? If it had the hole drilled in the bottom? Through the holes? I'm going to have to check. Check because that adds $200 to the value of the camera. Yeah. Yeah. So hold that thought, gentlemen. I'll be right back. He's going to go check. I, I have yourselves. I have one more question for Robert, uh, but I promised we could talk about other brands. I think in one of our uh, <clears throat> pre-game chats, somebody said, "You know, there's brands other than Nikon." Um, no, there isn't. Oh, is it? <laughs> uh, Robert, the the last time you were on, you said something that you've told me before, uh, but somebody after the show aired asked mo for more information. You had said that the black uh, Nikon S2s, they had to rechange, they, they made changes to the shutter so that it could be motor driven. Uh, so the person asked if you could elaborate a little bit more about what did okay. they change on the shutters on those? Right. Um, you, if you take the S2 is the largest production Nikon rangefinder, over 50 some thousand were made. Okay, that's the biggest production. They were made from December of 54 and they overlapped with the S3. So they were made to about 57 or 58. Okay. The first two thirds of their production, they're all basically the same. Then all of a sudden, you open up the back on these things and they've got a different chassis cover plate, which is identical to the one that's on the ESP. Okay. Those cameras are the black dials. Okay. They went to the black dials on the, on, on the superstructure, you know, your, uh, your, your shutter speed dial, your rewind, all this stuff was went to a black dial, which is a nice cosmetic touch. It's easier to see. But these black dial cameras were actually had a slightly different shutter in them. Okay. The first S2, the first Nikon motor, the very first motors were shown at the IPEX show in 1950, in March of 1957, before the SP was even released. In March of 1957 at the IPEX show in Philadelphia, Nikon had two motorized S2s behind the counter, okay? They were chrome S2s and they were black dials. They had modified the shutters to, to put up with the, the speed of the motor itself, okay? Because in, unfortunately in that design, it was the motor ran the camera, not the other way around. You know, today's technology, the camera runs the motor, but- uh, and, motor, and real quick, motor, real quick, for people who aren't familiar, this is a motor you attach, you replace the yeah, back, to the bottom, right? Okay. To the bottom, it's an interchangeable okay. motor, electric motor. Yep. And, uh, the motor ran the camera, so they had to do th things to the shutter to make it work better. They had to toughen it and all this. So all the what we call S2Es, which are, are the motorized S2s, of which something like 36 were made, um, all of them that have shown up have been black. Those two chrome ones at the IPEX show, no one's ever been able to find them. I've got pictures of them, but nobody's ever been able to find them. But those S2Es, those 36 S2Es that they made, they had to modify that shutter to hold up to the stress of the motor. 
Now, whether it's better gearing or whatever, they change some gearing or something like that, but you cannot put that motor on an earlier S2. It won't work. It just won't work. And they also had to put the coupling uh, at the bottom of the take-up spool to do this. There's only 36 of them out there. I had one. I had it for, I just got rid of it about a year ago, but I had one of the 36. I have a friend that has two of them, okay? But they're very rare. And uh, most of them are pro-use. They're, they're really beat up pretty bad. But, Robert, um, do, you, do you remember Rod Steins? Oh, Rod was one of my best friends. Mine too. Mine yeah. too. I, when he got I, killed, I couldn't believe yeah. it. I used to see him. He used to come to Chicago shows all the time because yeah. well, I, I live outside lived, Chicago. He lived in Muncie. And, Muncie, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, he, he and he I were all the shows. We were friends for, for many, many oh, years. Rod and, I used, Rod and I used to meet each other in, in Holland all the time for the Dutch yep. shows. Yep, yep. In fact, I sent a, what was the, the name of the Dutch guy that, I sent him a Nikon sailor's hat that, uh, that Rod gave him. He, he's, he's passed now, uh, Peter yeah. Louts. Peter, all right. I, I, I used to see Peter twice a year. I've been in Peter's house a dozen times. I've been in his museum a dozen times. He's been to my house four times, okay? I was very close friends with Peter for years. Yeah. Rod and I were very close. I, oh, was, yeah, he was a nice blow. guy. It was a blow. Yeah. He, he was killed in a bicycle accident. He was riding his bicycle, yeah. We, we were at a camera show on Saturday, and he didn't go to – he was going to not – he didn't feel well, and he wasn't going to go to Chicago. And Sunday morning, he got up to ride his bike and was hit yeah. by a Cadillac. Yeah, Cadillac hit him. Yeah, an old Cadillac, one of the big ones. Yeah, well, he had uh, – I, I went to his house after he passed and uh, and uh, got uh, – sort of cataloged what he had. Yeah, yeah. And uh, there was an incredible amount of uh, – Oh, he had everything. Stuff. All kinds of – but he was also a master photographer. You know, he did a lot of shooting of, of – uh, uh, motorcycle racing and car racing. He should yeah, show me some of his images. He was good. Yeah, great. Was, do you live near Muncie? Yeah, well, I'm uh, I'm in southwestern Ohio, so I'm about uh, maybe okay. an hour and a half from Muncie. Well, I'm in Dyer, Indiana, which is the very northwest corner of Indiana. I mean, I'm I'm a thousand feet from the Illinois border, so you know. Yeah, you and you and Mike are on uh, Central Time Zone. We could we well. You know, I, can you literally like hang up, I can hang up and I could run to Robert's house and I'd be there in about five okay. minutes. <laughs> in, it, between me and Mike, it's four minutes by car, six minutes by bike, and about eight minutes by walking. <laughs> if we, especially if we cross the railroad track. But if I had a good enough yeah. arm like that when I was a kid, I could probably throw a rock from here to yeah. his house. Yeah, it'd be one minute because you have to go around a set of railroad tracks to the crossing yeah, to the get to the problem. other side. Yeah. Yeah. I, I li- <laughs> he, he lives on the good side of the tracks. I'm on the bad side. Yeah. Well, if, if I can, you know, you know I can do. I can do you one better. I can actually fly to the US and land in US before I actually leave here, in Sydney. <laughs> it does happen. Well, Sorry, if Anthony, if I, I cut I, you off here. Well, yeah, I, I just, came back from Japan a few times. I did that. I left. I left Narita Airport one time at three o'clock in the afternoon and arrived in Chicago at two thirty. So <laughs> had to live the whole day over again. Well, while we have Robert here, I'm going to try to hijack for another question. Yeah. You know, when somebody mentioned that, that there, there were other brands besides Nikon, I said, yes, there's also Nikonos. Uh, yeah. So I, I've been out, as you can see from the manatee that's floating over my shoulder here, I've been out shooting with my, uh, with my two this week. Uh, and I'm really curious about how the transition happened between the Calypso and Nikon taking over the Nikonos line. Did, did Nikon have their own dive team that they were working with did they continue working with Cousteau? what how yeah. did how did that transaction happen i don't know between... I, it, it, there's a little bit of mystery around it um the uh you had you had the calypso camera which of course was was uh, more or less designed by, by Cousteau and uh was made by this small french company okay now whether or not this french company got in financial trouble 
or maybe they didn't have the distribution ability that uh, Cousteau wanted. They couldn't, it wasn't, it was very seldom seen outside of Europe. Okay. Nikon, I don't know whose idea it was, but they, they saw this item and they thought that they could do something with this. So whether they approached the French company or the French comp company approached them, I don't know. I've never been able to find that out. But the very first Nikonos is really just an improved Calypso. The shell and everything, it's all interchangeable parts, but they improved a few things, okay? And they mounted that 35-25 Nikkor lens from the rangefinder era, which was the best wide angle they ever made during the rangefinder era. The 35-25 is, is fabulous, okay? It's not too fast, not too slow. And uh, they improved a few things, and as time went by, of course, they kept improving. But the original, and it, actually, as a matter of fact, there's a series of Nikonos cameras that are sold in Europe that were called Calypso Nikkor. It's Calypso Flashmark Nikkor. They still, and also there's some of them out there. I actually owned one one time. It was a it was a Nikonis, but with the shark skin covering. Mm. Okay, the grayish shark skin covering. So it was a little bit. Old. They were selling them all over the world, but in the ones that they were selling, I think in France they had to keep the Calypso name for legal reasons. But it was Calypso slash Nikkor. So I did I did a bunch of research on this, and wh while you know what Robert said, nobody really knows what I was able to dig up. Uh, first of all, the name of the company that actually made the Calypso was called La Spiro Technique. Yeah, Spiro Technique. Yeah. Um, the the story goes is that they were were not a camera maker, and you know they did not have a lot of experience in making cameras, despite the fact that they were producing the Calypso. Um, the theory is, and Robert, you gave me a picture of the Nikon Marine, which was an underwater housing for the Nikon rangefinder. Right. They, they, they made a, a small, very small number of them. So it, extra small. extrapolating the fact that Nippon Kugaku produced that suggested they had an interest in making an underwater camera. And La Spiro Technique, being a French company that did not have a lot of optical experience, it kind of seemed like they both had an itch the other could scratch. Well, the so, Calypso the, the, the not, the, they did not make the lens. That little French company did not make the lens. It came with right. a, a, a Sam Berthiot or whatever, however it's pronounced. It was a Berthiot lens, wasn't Berthiot, it? Berthiot, yeah. right, right. That's right. It came with that. And then, of course, Nikon, well, we're going to put our lens on it, which was a better lens in the end anyway. But the thing is, uh, I think... That's what I kind of thought was happening. Either the French company just was too small or was, was just stretched out too economically speaking. They were just couldn't. And also they couldn't distribute right. They didn't have distributors. They weren't able to back it up because you have to have repair facilities and all this kind of stuff. But that Nikon Marine that was made during the rangefinder era, it was made at the tail end of the S2 and early SP era, was originally made for the, for the Japanese Navy. The Japanese Navy requested it. Okay. And I have seen two of them over the years. Okay, just two. I have records of three total, three serial numbers. Uh, we don't know how many they made. It could have been, yeah, that's it right there. They they could have made ten. They could have made twelve. I don't know how much how many the navy would need, but the navy originally ordered them. Um, whether or not they were ever actually sold commercially, retail wise, nobody's sure. They are in the uh, brochures that the, you know the literature that the company produced. Although I've never found a listing for it in any price list anywhere. But it is shown in their 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 literature, so extremely rare. So they were actually involved with underwater photography as early as the SP and S2. So maybe by the time they got, uh, they, they felt that it would be easier instead of trying to do another underwater house, especially for the F, which is a much bigger camera, uh, they would go with something like the Conus. And they captured that market for a long time. For a long time, they had that market. Yeah, we'll have pictures of this. Um, I have pictures of the the Nikon Marine. Yeah. Both and my Nikonos too. I reviewed the same exact Anthony or Anthony, 
the same exact camera, Anthony, I'm combining words here, uh, just shot recently, but I also have it in my uh, Nikon rangefinder prototypes uh, article there's one, too. There's one complete Marine outfit in the United States. I've seen it. I've photographed it. It's got everything. I mean, every part that was ever made. It comes with all kinds of parts and whatever. Each lens had to require its own focusing gear, wheel, right. all this kind of stuff. But yeah. uh, that's the only one that's in the United States that I'm aware of. Then there's another one that's in Tokyo at a collection. I've also seen that, but it's not as complete as the one that's in the United States. The one in the United States even has the original khaki carrying cases and everything like this. So it, it, it looks very military because it has all khaki. There's no leather. And um, well, the third one, I just have a number for. Actually, one of them showed up. The one that showed up at an auction at Westlick a few years back was actually the one that was in Tokyo. So the guy in Tokyo did sell it. that went through Westlick. I don't know where it ended up. But I only have three serial numbers recorded. So this is something you gave me, Robert. It's is is that the the Nikon prototype you're talking about? Okay, this is yeah. This is basically what it ended up looking like. This this is one of the first announcements in the Japanese literature. The picture here is slightly different than the ones they used in their catalog. Not catalog. They actually it's in the Nikon manual by by right. They show a picture of it. There's also a couple of Japanese brochures that show, but I've never seen it in a in a. Well, I have seen it in an English language brochure, but it's a real tiny little. Tiny, tiny picture. And uh, this is the elaborate one where they're showing two flash units, et cetera. But basically, it's the same unit. And everything was adjustable from the outside. Um, it was very professional. It's heavy, very heavy. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I don't know what and kind I, of metal it is, but man, it's heavy. And it's I don't very read complicated. And I don't read Japanese, but it, it looks clearly like it was, it works with the S2, the S3, and the SP. Yeah, it'll fit, use all three of them. Well, they had to be heavy I, to be neutrally buoyant in the water. Right. Because you had yeah. a, a fairly large air gap there because they're big yeah. cameras. And uh, so you had to have the weight so it would not. But you could adjust everything from the external. Everything was adjustable. You could put lenses from like around 28 to maybe 85 on the camera. I think 105s were too long. Okay, And I yeah. think the 20, 25, the, the, the portal wasn't big enough. You'd get big netting. But uh, you could use interchangeable lenses. They gave you different wheels for each lens and whatever, you know. And I've seen one that, uh, one picture of one that had a 35 1.8 on it, which would be a good lens to use underwater because it's relatively fast and still has good coverage. But yeah, there it it was it was such a technical feat. But you know darn well they wouldn't aim that at consumers. That had to be aimed at some type of a government agency, which it was. God knows what it sold for. The one that's in the United States, I was there the day the fell bought it in Tokyo. There were, we were at the Matsuya show in in downtown Tokyo in February. They have it every year. And he saw this and he bought it. And I'm not, I think he paid like something like $7,000 for it or something like this, but it's absolutely complete. Like it's never been used. You know, wow. Beautiful. So Anthony, Anthony, you got to be the only person in the world still shooting film on it underwater on a Nikonos. Nikonos. I, people give me funny looks, but you know, I got to tell you that the, uh, you know, cause when I was shooting underwater, I remember, I remember the last time I shot film underwater, I was diving in Anacapa out in Catalina in California, uh, shooting seals with a, with a five. And then we started doing the cave diving shots and it just made no sense to shoot film because you just, if you're going to do a dive that was going to be 300 feet deep and the dive might yeah. be six hours total with decompression, uh, you don't want to be limited to 36 shots. Um, did you ever, did you ever use the, the RS big? Exotic? I never did. I was going to say the, that I've now I've got two fives now and I, I and you know of all the cameras I have that's still one of my favorite cameras. 
Have you ever handled or seen an RS? I have. I have. They are. (laughs) You talk about overkill, right? (laughs) I mean, this thing is absolutely fantastic. I mean, the lenses were just state of the art and whatever. And then it died. They just, you know, it didn't last too long. They yeah. had to lose their shirt on that one. They never could have gotten their development money back on that. No, I mean, and it's and and I, I used to work in the dive industry, and we did underwater lighting. So I worked very mm-hmm. closely with Subal and all the companies that were making these housings for these cameras. Mm-hmm. And you know, when they would have a film camera back in the day, like let's say they came up with a, a housing for the uh, F four, okay, you know, they got twenty years of use out of that housing. Sure. And then they'd sure. come out with a housing for a D one hundred, and they'd have. Six months, months. (laughs) six months, nine months. And then, you know, on the next model, they would move one button an eighth of an inch and those housings would be useless. And, and I don't know how those, I don't know how those companies stay in business because the F F was in production for over 13 years. The F2 was in production for over 10 years. The F3 was in production for almost 18 years, you know, but that, 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 turnover in in models is different now. I mean, now it's, I know know, as soon as the one comes out, you know, it's just insane. Every six I don't, months like I said, or a year. Because the, the uh, housings are not cheap. I mean, you got a professional no. housing for, for, for depth, and you know, you're looking at a ten thousand dollar housing. Yeah. Uh, uh, Anthony, have you ever used the uh Raleigh Flex underwater? The, I, I think had. the Raleigh no, Marine I've, sells for several times the cost of a Raleigh. I've never even I mean, I've seen pictures of one, I've never seen one in the field. I'd love to, I'd love to. I would love to, but I've never seen one in the field. But I, I just had a friend that one of my old dive team friends uh, just texted me because he saw some of my manatee photos that I took with the with the two. And he was like, um, well, uh, you know, somewhere in my garage, I, I have a four with a housing. Are you do you want to do you want it? <laughs> wow. Yes. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Who wouldn't? So we've had uh, Mark, Mark Peterson and Miles on. You guys haven't had any. Uh, questions and do you guys have any questions or anything you want or are you just soaking it all in and i can be not nikon yeah you can talk about yes. whatever you want <laughs> anything you want i've been collecting questions for a while but uh go for it i got uh i just just a question i got a i picked up a um pentax spotmatic too just recently with a couple of lenses on it and i noticed that the uh the um the mirror sticks up on occasion it sounds like with a little research online that's a common problem with these pen, pen just need to be clean just needs to be cleaned it'll yeah. fix right up and yeah. uh, okay so it's not uh, not too bad to... i mean you, you could temporarily get it free it up by taking the base plate off and squirting in some electrical contact cleaner but well, it sticks up but then every other frame it'll it'll come back, back down. down yeah there yeah. i don't know there, there's a little like lever that just okay. it, the, the tiniest bit of resistance on it and the spring doesn't catch or something. I, I don't know the right way to fix it, but it's, 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 it's common. It's fixable. It's definitely fixable. Yeah. What, yeah. what lens do you have on it, Mark? Well, I, I, it came with three. I have the, uh, 35, three, five. Nice. I got the, the 51, four with some nice yellowing really nice and, things. uh, it's a seven element. And then is that radioactive. That is. And then it came with this bonus, which I don't really know what to do with, but it has a 300 millimeter uh, F6.3, which makes 300 millimeter handheld possible, I think, which is <laughs> interesting. You know, that's not a common lens. No. Yeah, I was going to say, that's, that's, that's yeah. a nice lens. Yeah, that's a nice lens. Yeah, I got this picked up from off Facebook Marketplace, and I don't think the guy knew what he had, and I got it for a song and a dance for all, uh, the, cool. all the whole kit, and it's a black body. 
But if you start using it a lot, look for an 85, because the 85 for that camera was just an absolutely excellent lens. Yeah, that's right. Is that 85, uh, what, what uh, uh, one aperture? Eight or one nine, I can't remember. I think they might've had actually both, but it's yeah, a they really did. nice lens for in the Takamars. Yeah, well, that, that's good news, because my other follow-up question to that was, if that doesn't work, what's the other M42 mount <laughs> cameras folks are shooting? But that's... Uh... Well, you know, get that fixed. I mean, that's a, that is really a nice camera, and it's well worth fixing. You know, the first thing I tell people when, when they say the mirror is sticking up is to look at the foam on the top where the mirror hits. Sometimes that foam will degrade and get sticky. And when that happens, the mirror goes up, hits the foam, and sticks to it. Yeah. Uh, and then it'll release sooner or later. But Mike, Mike has had more experience with uh, the, that lever on the bottom. That's yeah. that's really normally the problem. Yeah. yeah. I had mine serviced, and I'll tell you what, they're smooth as butter. They are really nice cameras to use once you get them serviced. It's definitely worthwhile getting it serviced. Well, that's uh, good news. That's what I plan on doing. Within within easy reach, the only M42 screw mount camera I have is a Zenit 16. Uh, <laughs> this this is definitely a camera I do not recommend. Um, uh, I got this one from Vlad Curran, and he says, you mean to tell me that piece of junk actually works? Uh, <laughs> this is the only camera, so I'll, I'll have pictures of this on the podcast. The shutter release is on the back is on the back of the body. So that's the shutter release there. So picture your eye is to the viewfinder. So you do it with your thumb. You got to do it with your you're thumb. You're doing it with your thumb, but you're pushing the camera away from your face at like a Topcon and a Miranda. They're on the front. Yeah. So you squeeze the shutter release like into your nose, but you can kind of stabilize the camera with your nose. But on this one, you're actually pushing it away from your face as you're firing the shutter. It's, uh, it's How many strange. times did you hit, oh, this, hit it with your glasses? Yeah. Um, I, I'm a left eye shooter, so it really doesn't hit it too much at all. But um, yeah, I don't know. It, that wasn't more the issue. It's just more you have your thumb in there and you're just kind of jabbing at it. And it's, it's, so I would not recommend that one. <laughs> so as a left eye shooter, uh, uh, probably night, a lot of the manual focus Nikon cameras are problematic because you yeah. have to pull the line. And I have a Leica Flex. I think you've reviewed the Leica Flex. You, yep. you pull it out like 90 degrees before oh, yeah. you. It sticks straight back. It's yeah, it's yeah, it's yeah. idle position is straight back on the Leica yeah. Fox. The Nikon yeah. half standoff is only about twenty degrees, so you're still gonna poke yourself with it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Mark, if you if you need another kind of an M forty two body, uh, Practica L series are cheap and cheerful in my part of Canada. There were, it's a military town. There's a lot of uh, the National Defense Headquarters here. There was a lot of uh, military people that were stationed at NATO bases in Germany and they bought practicas and brought them back. So I don't know, the, the going rate is like 25 bucks Canadian for uh, practica LTL and they all work yeah. like the shutters are really reliable vertical shutters. No, no special features. They're not, they're not uh, very refined to use, but they work. They'll, so you know, you can put whatever lens you want on it. Similar to that, my recommendation besides Pentax would be Yashica. Their uh, screw mount SLRs are pretty good too. But you know they don't hold that pretty well. They had the Electro, which had the two arrows in the viewfinder. Uh, they did even make one called the AX, which had auto exposure. Uh, I have one of those too. They're kind of fun to shoot, but the viewfinder's a bit dim on them. But uh, Yashica made some really good ones. The the Practica Four is is really good. Uh, that's probably my favorite Practica. That's a M42. 
Um, oh, their Fujikas, made, they made some uh, screw mount that were pretty, like the ST801 had LEDs, like a Nikon FM2, and uh, it was a it was a decent camera. I never really liked, they, they had a sort of a joint in the, the winder that made it feel kind of floppy, but other than that, it was a good camera, a nice viewfinder. And, uh, well, the Fuji basically, M42, awesome. you've got your, your sport for choice with M42. You, yeah, there's a lot of them. Well, Chenon, Chenon, Chenon. made a, Chenon. A, a lot of models of uh, M42s. And and the, the electronic ones, the CE4 and the Memotrons, those were all yep. excellent cameras, highly electronic. Memia. Uh, the Chenon Winder had uh, an interval timer built into it. Um, it was one of the first that had a full feature on a motor drive. Actually, it wasn't a motor. It was an auto winder, but it had a lot of stuff on it. Uh, I, I briefly owned the Mamiya uh, DTL, uh, 1960s era uh, screw mount. I didn't like it at all because of the they, – they, they had the spot meter – option and they what they did is that the mirror was half silvered in a you know in a certain area uh, in the middle and it was very obviously dimmer and i never really got used to that so i uh, i put one roll or maybe two rolls through it and then sold it so here's a bizarre one uh, i'm working on a review for the core field paraflex um which we could talk about that some other time, but um, it, when Corefield was starting to, to run out of customers, uh, they released a version of that camera that didn't have the periscope and they called them the inner plan. I don't know why they gave it that name, but there's an inner plan A, B, and C. And the inner plan A has an M39 mount. The inner plan B, I believe, has the exact amount, but the inner plan C had the M42 screw mount. Now this this is a rangefinder body, so you know if you want to get into some really really obscure cameras, you know there is actually a, a British made Corfield Interplan C that has a, a, a M42 screw mount, but that's that's one that's an IRA camera. Well, the last Alpa also had. Uh, oh, okay, mount. that's right. The SI three thousand. Yep. I think yeah. That yeah, was, I, it wasn't made by Alpa in any way. It was way made in Japan, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. it's Chenon. Yeah. So basically, I, Nikon's Nippon Kogaku is probably the only company who didn't make an M42. <laughs> uh, <laughs> has anyone ever the, handled the handled a French uh, French folding camera known as the Pontiac? Yeah, Block Metal. I've held okay. a Lynx before, the Pontiac Lynx. Okay, and it's as I I've never handled one. I I, I one went by, but it wasn't in good shape, so. As I understand it, everything, even the what looks like the sort of corduroy leatherette or corduroy cloth covering is not cloth. It's aluminum with a, a pattern milled into it to look like corduroy. That's correct. Yeah. Is the camera Nikon any did good? Make a, like, Nikon did make a 39, M39 mount lenses, of course, is like a yeah. screw mount. As yeah. a matter of fact, in the early years, they sold more screw mount lenses than they did bayonet mount because there was the market was there. They sold for all the Japanese uh, Leica copies. And of course, the original Canon came with their lenses too. But in the beginning, Nikon was was making money off their screw mounts. That kept them in business. Are, are the black belt? I mean, I've got my eye on a few black belt LTM um, Nikon uh, Nikon lenses uh, L thirty nine with the black diaphragm. Yes, yeah, they they seem to be called black belt for some reason. Yeah, they're just uh, later. They're later. They're later. They they realize that black lettering on chrome isn't always that visible 
So they went to the white lettering on black, which is what they did with the black dial S2s. And then after, eventually, of course, in the reflex era, almost everything was on black, white on black. But it's more visible because they're going to glare off the lenses and whatever. Their, their chrome was very high reflective chrome. And under certain conditions, you'd have trouble seeing some of those numbers, you know. So, Robert, how about the 3525 and the 18 barrel? Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> nobody knows why they did this. Okay. The 35 1.8 came out, I think like 1956 or whatever. Okay. And it was actually physically different than most of their other lenses at that time. It had a nice scalloped focusing mount, etc. And then they came out with this 2.5 and they put it in the same barrel, which made sense. Okay. Cause it was a good barrel. It was, it was an improvement over the previous barrels as far as handling went. They never promoted it. They never announced it. It just showed up, okay? So it's very, very late in production, very late, probably about 1960 almost, okay? But what always kind of threw us, it's always bothered me, is the 21F4, which was their glamour lens, right? That comes out in 1959. It did not have that mount. It had a totally different mount. It did not have a, a scalloped focus. The mount it had just fine threading, and it had chrome front rim. I mean, who puts a chrome front rim on a 21-millimeter lens, right? Okay. So... They have the 3518, then they come out with the, with this 21, which doesn't mimic it at all. And then they come out with a 3525 that does mimic it. So it doesn't make sense. So 21 should have been the same barrel, really. But um, yeah, that, that 20, at 3525 and the 1.8 barrel, uh, I've seen just a few pictures of it in some of their late literature, but they never actually physically announced it as being a new model. You know, it's just, uh, and that lens, the 3525 was about one of their longest Besides their 51.4 and 50F2, the 35.25 is their longest running lens almost as far as production years go. They made that thing forever. They made it for, all the way from like 1950 or so all the way to the end. Then, of course, they ended up under the Konos. <laughs> <laughs> and also those those clunky uh, little Nicorex, um, uh, like the Zoom 30, not the Zoom, but the Nicorex 35, they're, they're real square looking and they're, they're fixed focus lenses. I mean, not fixed focus, but they're fixed mount. They're not interchangeable. They all came with 35.25 Nicorex too. So they used that lens for a long time. Another camera, um, perhaps Mark, maybe one day you'll you'll jump into um, is the Practina. Have oh, you ever I seen love, one of these? I love Practinas. I've got about I've got about ten of those. Go ahead, Mark. What you're saying? Well, I was just going to say I've I've only been doing this since about March. Uh, I've been oh, okay. shooting digital before that, but I've piled up a collection over this year, and <laughs> I have not seen one of those. I've, I've I guess I've seen some reviews and but yeah, not seen them and handled them. Practina, I've got about, I don't know, 10 or 15 of them, and I've got a bunch of lenses for it. And the Practina is really, the, the ideas behind the Practina are really good, okay? The design is good. They couldn't execute it that well, but the design was good. But it came out about 1955, if I'm correct, okay? And if you look at the Nikon F, which came out in 59, but was on the drawing boards in 57, the original Nikon F prototypes had that exact same window in the front, like the Alpa head and also the Practina. And other things about the Nikon F are taken off of the Practina and the motor idea and all this kind of stuff. So the Practina was really ahead of its time. It's it's underrated. I've got some that work flawlessly. I've got both the spring round motor and the electric and they, it works. Uh, some of them are, you know, they go bad. The shutters go bad. Of course, the curtains go bad from age. And sometimes the mirrors don't come back like they're supposed to. They're not returnable, but they still don't come down at all. But the Practina was actually influential with the Nikon F. It actually influenced the Nikon F designers to a certain point, the interchangeable prisms, et cetera. The story of the company and the guy who designed it and built it was is one of the best stories in the photo industry too. 
It is. It's the, it broke the company. If I remember it, right, it, they lost their shirt on it. It was too much for them. They couldn't afford it, right? It, well, the it was cost people, was so high. They, they were, they were, uh, I think Father the original son. company were, were, they were Jews that Correct. were taken by the Russians, no, by yeah. the Germans. By the Germans. They were by liberated the by the Russians and had to buy their way out of Russia uh, and finally came to the U.S. And it was just a fascinating story. Was his name Noble? Charles and John Noble were yeah, Americans. Noble. Charles yeah. Charles actually was a German citizen who had relocated to, I think, Detroit. But his son was born here. And uh, the original owners of KW were uh, Benno Thorsch and a guy named Paul Guth, or G-U, I'm butchering it, I know. But they left in 38 because of the Nazis. Yeah. They Benno Thorsch came to America, met Charles Noble somehow, said, hey, how would you like to run your own camera company? So he, he traded with them and just gave them the rights to it. Being an American, he wasn't subjected to the same level of, you know, treatment. But anyway, so they started a KW. They were producing the Practiflex. Things were going okay. World War II comes, or, you know, things happen towards the end of the war. It, it, it got bad. Like, you know, the Nazis lost. Uh, you have an American citizen and his son running a camera company in Dresden still. The Soviet government came in, accused them of espionage, threw them both in jail. Charles, being the actual owner of the company uh, and a, a German citizen, ended up getting released after a couple years. Uh, but his son, for reasons that nobody knows, they kept him locked up. They they threw him in the gulags. You know, he was at one point uh, shipped up north to some prison camp way, 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 way. A town was called Varkuta, Varkuta, whatever. Um, and he, you know, starvation treatment, it was just absolutely horrible. Uh, but somehow he worked his way up to be in the mail room where he was processing prisoner mail. And somehow he was able to stick two letters together to official mail and then stuck one of his letters to the back of it and got it out to someone in West Germany who picked it up, got in touch with the American embassy. You know, he ended up getting freed. You know, basically the Eisenhower administration went to the Soviets and said, Hey, you have an American citizen in a gulag, get him out of there. So they got him out of there. I have all this on my article, but it, you know, John Noble later in the nineties formed Noblex. Mm -hmm. So the Noblex okay. panoramic camera uh, okay. is actually the same guy. He, he attempted after the Soviet Union fell, after the Berlin Wall fell, he attempted to regain uh, control over KW in, in what was formerly East Germany. And by then, you know, all of his patents were just destroyed. He basically got like the equivalent of a whoops, sorry about that, you know, but he ultimately got nothing out of it and just decided, you know, to make the Noblex. So, yeah, it's it's a it's an amazing story. Sorry, so do, do the, the Practica series from East Germany have some lineage back to the Practina Flex then or? Very little. Yeah, they, they really shared nothing alike. Um, like Robert said, the Practina has an interchangeable viewfinder. Uh, it has a bayonet screens. lens mount. Yeah, screens interchangeable also. screens. It even has, um, if you've ever seen an Azahi Flex, it has a through the body viewfinder. Yeah. So you, you have a pentaprism. But you can also do fast action shots through this viewfinder, which Robert knows the original Nikon F prototype actually right. had one of these. Has two. that same window in the exactly, same spot. Exactly the same. So exactly Nikon same. clearly took a lot of influence. I mean, if you even look at the general shape of the prism, it's yeah. it's it's not entirely different from the Nikon's pentaprism. Mm. I bottom, have bottom mounted uh, 
motor drives and etc. Yeah. So you can, I have the accessory. This is um, a bottom lever wine, but this Except comes off. Rapid, rapid wine lever, yeah. Right. So it had, let me take this off and I can show you, but it's got a, a motor coupling. Yeah, you know, right there. Right there. And this, this built right in. was built right in. You know, this is the 1953. Back is removable for the bulk back. They made a 50 foot bulk back. Yeah. Uh, I've got a couple of those and then you just take the back off and you pop this thing on there. You yeah. use the same motor, you just use a, a different back. Technically, the Exacta would have been the first professional 35 millimeter SLR system, but the Practina was the first modern professional right. system that looks and functions like cameras do today. Uh, they were mostly mostly Zeiss lenses, weren't they? Correct. Yeah, yeah they're all Zeiss lenses. Yeah. Yeah. The yeah. one I, I have one with the Tessar, and I have one with the Biotar. Yeah, those Biotar are the two most common lenses. Almost, yeah. Yeah, there are some others. There's some other glass I have in Practina Mount uh, Uma UMA or something like that. Right. Shot yeah. made something. Shot, shot also, made some too. Shot yeah. made something. But the, from what I've been told, the R and D on the Practina almost broke the company. Okay, because they wanted to make a professional grade interchangeable lens system, and then the actual production of it cost them. They didn't. They didn't figure things right, and they just it just just broke them. It just broke them. They just, they couldn't recover from it. They never did come back again. But Nikon took some of those same features and they were successful with it. Yeah. Of course, so Nikon I mean, had the, you know, automatic diaphragm, things like that, which the Practina never sure. had. But it's, 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 they're cool cameras. But the I basic, mean, the basic idea is there. Right. And they, and, and despite having a name that sounds awfully a lot like Practica, yeah. Practina, yeah. there's yeah. just one letter difference. They're very yeah. different cameras. Yeah. Oh, totally. No, no resemblance whatsoever. Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. It had a bayonet mount, had a breech lock, as a matter of fact. They had a breech lock before Canon had a breech lock. Mm -hmm. Okay, it has a unique mount. Uh, they're the only camera they ever made that had that mount. And the lenses that were made specific for the Practina have that mount, okay? And, and they're not as, as widespread as the M42s, of course. But there's just, there's a fair number of them out there. Nova Flex made some real long ones with the, with the pistol grips and whatever. And you'll see pros from the 50s and that. They'd actually use their Practina with the Nova Flex lenses. Uh, shooting sports and things like that so here's another story robert since i know you're here a story you've told me that i'd see if you could share with the group um regarding olympus's attempt at going pro i think oh. you had told me that it was it was was it okay. upi yeah well i was i was in school from uh, uh 66 to 71 and while i was there I, I did the yearbook and everything else but i also became a stringer for upi in, in des moines iowa which is where i went to school and I was helping the, the local UPI photographer cover various things. Anyway, I'm packed up. I'm ready to come home. The school year is, is, is over. And uh, uh, I ended up shooting Bobby Kennedy and all this kind of stuff with him. But anyway, I got to know these guys pretty well. And their equipment ca uh, cabinet at the UPI building in Des Moines, which is a small office for UPI. It's not like New York. They had this cabinet. It was just full of all Nikons. Okay? And every time they, in those days, whenever they would hire a new photographer, for UPI, they were given a black motorized F with a straight prism. They were given a 35 F2. They were given a 105. And that's what they were sent out into the field with. They could add to that anytime they wanted, okay? And every time, if you were, if you were working for UPI and you were cycling through Southeast Asia for some you know, project or assignment, they always had told you to go to stores in, in Tokyo or whatever and pick up a couple of sets and bring back because they could buy it cheaper than getting it from Aaron Reich. But anyway, they, that's all they used. That's all they used was Nikon Fs, period. Nothing else. National Geographic was the same way. It's all, if you saw their, they had a thing in their magazine one time, they showed you their equipment uh, catalog, or it was just all Nikons, wall to wall, okay? Well, then Olympus comes out with the OM-1, and Olympus tries to get UPI's business. So they went to UPI, 
and they gave UPI $100,000 worth of Olympus OM1 equipment so they could switch from Nikon to Olympus. So UPI says, well, why not? Let's do it, right? They did it. About four years later, they switched back. The Olympuses just fell apart. They just fell apart. They, they, they were nice and small and light, but they couldn't take professional abuse. They, they did the same apart. thing with National Geographic. Yeah. The they tried to, they really tried to buy their way in, and it, it just didn't, didn't work. work. It didn't, didn't work. work. You know? And, you know, for a couple, when you have, you know, a couple hundred bodies and, and two, four, three, four hundred lenses that you're farming out to all these people, everybody's using the same thing. Everybody's buying the same thing. They're all sharing stuff together. It becomes like a, a norm. Well, when you try to switch them to something else, whatever you're switching to better be better. You know, I ran into a, I was in uh, Lincoln Park Zoo in, in Chicago here one time years back. And I'm standing there. I'm, I've got my F around my, my neck and I'm shooting. And there's a guy standing there and he had an F around his neck. So, of course, we started to talk. Right. Turns out that this guy was also a former UPI photographer. He's the one that relayed the story to me because he was involved with it after I already left. I graduated school. I didn't have time to be UPI, but he was with UPI throughout the 70s and the 80s. And he told me that story. He says, when we, we said it was almost a joke, we started to use it for doorstops. I mean, they just had no value whatsoever. They just, the glass, the glass was good, but the barrel was, if you look through an Olympus barrel, it's all glass. There's very little metal involved. Okay. They just couldn't hold up. And the body's just, couldn't take the punishment either so what i like about that story is it, it's not to suggest that olympus made bad stuff because they, no, did. they the, didn't the, the om1 was a great camera but yeah. one of the one of the questions we got asked in a previous episode i think it was mario he asked you know why was nikon so successful and i think people today you know because because everything's kind of on an even playing field you go out and buy a new digital camera they're all they're all going to be good Right. But nobody needed to make things to the level that Nikon did back then. And people, it, it's hard to understand how much effort Nikon, Nippon Gugaku put into those early Fs and the F2s. Those cameras were tools. They were, you know, they were battle ready, you know, and, and, to, and to take a really nice camera like the OM1 and subject it to what the Nikons had to go through. I don't think anything could have held up at that time. Maybe maybe the Canon F1 series might have made it, but that would be about it. But the thing is, the the, the Nikon F, which was released in, in May of 1959, was on the drawing boards at the same time as the Nikon SP, which was released in September of 57, okay? So the F is actually a 1956-57 design. It did not get to market until 59 because the accountants... <laughs> downstairs wanted the company to use the same chassis for both models to save money. Well, you couldn't do it because of the mirror mechanism. They had to make the F chassis a half inch longer. Okay. There's just no way they could do it. So that stalled the F from getting, otherwise the F would have been released in 57 and not 59. Okay. That's how long ago it was designed. The F, I'm not a repairman, but I used to play around with it when I was younger and had good eyesight. I used, to, I used to, I could take an F apart, open it up. It opens up like a book. I mean, there's nothing, there's no plastic in there. There's no wires. There's no nothing. It's just all metal and gears. Okay. But it opens up. So it, it's so elegant. When you open, there's all this room. There's nothing packed in there real tight. There's all kinds of room. The camera is bigger than it needs to be. Okay. But that's for, that's for strength. The, the, the chassis walls are thicker and all this kind of, the gears are all metal. There's no plastic in there anywhere. And the thing is, is that it was designed to be tough. From day one, the Nikon F is the only, for two reasons, the only reflex camera that ever had 100% viewfinder, not 96, not 97, not 90. Some had 93. The F had 100%. What you saw on that screen was exactly what was going to be on the film. The other feature that they had was they were the only reflex ever made with a locking mirror. But that I mean, 
When that mirror went up, when it came back down, it locked. There was a lever that it locked on. So there was no bounce. So it had its own unique sound. It was loud. It was never a quiet camera. But when it went up, it came back down. It locked. You can hold an F upside down. That mirror does not move. Okay. The F2 did not have a locking mirror. And when I picked up my first F2 when I was in a store, after using Fs for like 10 years, I pick up his F2, brand new guy showed it to me. I pick it up. I go and I fire it. I go, it doesn't sound. It does not sound the same. The F2 turned out to be a good camera. Don't get me wrong. But it does not sound the same. And the F had the only one with a locking mirror. No one else ever did that. So you can't do that with an F, what you're doing there. You're you just mirror, answered right? my, I was going to ask the controversial question. What's, okay. Is there anything better about the F? Like that the, everybody says the F2 was like a redesign that improved everything. But the F2 was evolution. In other words, even, even Pop Photo had the right, when they reviewed the F2, they said it wasn't revolutionary. It was evolutionary. What they did on the F2 that, that it made things easier. Okay. Um, the battery was built into the body, so you didn't have to have it in the finders. So the finders were more streamlined and smaller. Okay. The motors were totally different. They were attached totally. You know, you could put any motor on any camera. You didn't have to have anything modified. Like with the F, you still had to have them adjusted. Uh, you didn't have to have a removable bag. It has swing back, which, of course, is much easier to re- especially when you had a motor on. When you had an F motor, you had to take the whole thing off to reload it. Okay. So, and the F2 motor uh, was more intelligent. In other words, it wasn't driving the camera. They were talking to each other. So things were working a little smooth. And of course, the F had a faster shutter speed too. But the mirror mechanism uh, was faster. The cycle was much quicker. You could fire at higher rates. And part of it was because that mirror wasn't locking. Even when the F was being used, you could use it with, with the mirror moving up to three frames per second. At four frames, you had to have the mirror locked up. But at three frames per second, you could use this thing. And I used, to, I used to shoot football and car racing or whatever. And I'm going like this for 10, 15 frames, just laying on the button, right? And that mirror is just going like this, locking every time it came down, but still going, you know, perfect, okay? The F2, they changed that because they wanted more speed. And the braking mechanism was different, of course. They, they improved the braking mm-hmm. mechanism. The, the camera was quieter. The shutter didn't have any bounce like it had. The F sometimes would have shutter bounce like, as it got old or whatever. Otherwise, they left everything else alone. But I, I always missed, you know, when you change film on an F, you take the back off, you stick the back under your armpit. <laughs> I used to do shooting football <laughs> games. I'd be walking down the sideline with the F back underneath my armpit. Trying to figure out where the hell you're going to put the back when you're with gloves on, trying you to when you have a motor on a cordless battery pack. Yeah, you got something that weighs almost as much as the camera. What do right. you do with that? And you got a strap attached to the motor and a strap. Yeah, that's what hangs. And hanging. And it's yeah. hanging around your neck and flapping. Well, I went to when I was at school in Des Moines. We had a newspaper there called the Des Moines Register and Tribune, which is actually a very famous paper in the United States. Had a huge photography department. Okay, and they shot with motorized Nikon's everything. Okay, all the basketball and football games are all shot. So I'd be out there with with these. The uh, Moines Register photographers who I knew, they're all used. They had six 250 shot Nikon F motors. Okay. They're out there shooting basketball with two. I'm sitting underneath the basket with, with, with the guy named Larry Nybergal. He's got a 250 shot motor. He's got a right angle pistol grip. So the motor's in a vert, the whole thing's vertical. So now he's sitting there and he's just firing away all day. They <laughs> shot all the football games. They shot Drake relays with that. They had a machine at the, at the office. Because you have a you have a, you know a fifty foot roll of film now, right? So they had a machine where they would stick that thing at one end of the machine and it would come out the other end. They had a machine just to develop that film it was fabulous. And they use in their Sunday editions. They always have what they called. Um, they had sequence pictures. You know, somebody catching the football or somebody laying the layup in the basketball. They used to run like six or eight pictures in sequence. They, they loved it. They shot all Nikon's. And um, I remember one time we were shooting Drake relays in the rain. It started to rain. It's always in April, so it's starting to rain. And I had just my one little camera. I had to be careful. Nobody's going to replace that, right? Well, they're out there with the, you know, one guy he's shooting with a motor, 
which is electrical, right? You shoot with the, and the, the, the leather is peeling back. Because <laughs> the, right? yeah. Then one year, a guy by the name of Rich Clarkson was there. He ended up being the photo editor for People Magazine. Okay, but at that time, he was in Wichita, Kansas. He was a UPI stringer. So they sent him to Des Moines to shoot the relays. He comes out there with a coolie, a helper, with the biggest Halliburton cases I've ever seen. They were like this. Okay, he had four of them. Rich Clarkson was maybe five foot eight, 140 pounds, soaking wet. Over one shoulder is a motorized F with a 300 on it. Over the other shoulder is a motorized F with a 400 on it. He's got a, he's got a, F, uh, a Leica M3 here on short strap for close work. And he's got another motorized F over here. The guy must have 30 pounds of equipment around his neck, okay? And he's walking around all day shooting relays. That's, and we had guys from New York Times out there. Sports Illustrated was out there. Zimmerman was out there one year and all that. And it was a big event. And uh, I used to sit there with my one little Nikon with a 514. <laughs> you know, and I just, uh, wish I had that stuff, but. We, uh, we have a feature of the show where we like to take people like Mark Peterson, who says he's new to this. Uh, this yeah. is a segment of the show uh, that we like to call, What Can Mark Buy From Paul? <laughs> so we had, we had uh, Michael Gossett on, and within hours of the show ending, they were arranging a per- purchase of a Ag for Speedix. So Mark, has, have we discussed anything today that we would like to, you would like to buy from Paul? <laughs> no? Do you, have a, do you have a wish list? I have a wish list of cameras, but uh, nothing that came up specifically today. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, maybe next time then. Get, we'll, get we'll... something medium format. It's it's uh, it's nice if you've just shot 35 millimeter to, to yeah, try. Medium how, how, about, nice, yeah. how about a Connie Rapid Omega? You Here's my medium format edition at the moment. You know what I have? I You know what I could send you? I can send you an OM-1 with a 1.4 lens on it. Free. How about that? Okay. Something new to try. Are you on? Are you on our camera, Camerosity podcast Facebook group? I am. Okay. Send me send me a private message with your with your address on it. Okay. Um, it's the lens is going to have a little bit of fungus in it, and the body is going to have one tiny little uh, uh, thing in the viewfinder that looks sort of funky, but it, it's certainly usable, and the meter works fine on it. So it's one of Dan Arnold's cameras. <laughs> so. I'd, I'd like you. I, I'll, I'll be glad to, to uh, send you that as a as a welcoming See? gift. It's a camerosity miracle. <laughs> there we go. You have to post results in the in the Facebook group. Yes, so. yes. and you that's, have to come back okay. and come back on the show in a future episode and tell us about it. <laughs> well, I've got lots of questions. Only doing this for like nine or ten months, so okay. I'll be okay. glad to come back. Sadly, we have reached that moment in the show. Where we do need to start wrapping up. I find that I cannot edit longer, uh, too much longer than an hour and a half show. Uh, it starts to make my, my head spin. Uh, but I want to thank everybody who joined. Um, does anybody have any last minute questions or uh, recent acquisitions they want to quickly tell us about before we go? Well, I've got an interesting one that actually arrived during the show. Um, a Serena 35mm lens, which um, I'm not allowed to open until next week, having been Christmas. Uh, but I did hear it arrive while we were actually doing the show. He could so, hear the uh, reindeer on the roof. Do they have yes. reindeer down in Australia or are they just wallabies? Uh, I think we've got a bit of both. But um, <laughs> there is actually there is, there is a uh, Santa Claus that has um, kangaroos instead of okay. reindeer. That's right. <laughs> What time is it in Australia? What time is it? In Fortunately, right Christmas now? comes earlier in Australia, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it's twenty to three in the afternoon now. On the next what, day, yeah, tomorrow. Okay. tomorrow. It's Tuesday for him. It's Tuesday, yeah. 
one announcement we had uh, uh, suggested we were looking into at the last show is we record this typically Monday nights, um, Eastern time around 9 p.m., uh, but that leaves out most of Europe uh, who is unable to join with the exception of uh, I, I already forgot his name, but we did have one British caller last time. But uh, we are looking Malcolm to Myers. do Malcolm Myers. That's right. Yeah, thank you. Uh, we are looking for our next show, which we will be recording um, two weeks from today, Monday, December 27th. We are going to be doing a European time zone show. Uh, more details to follow. But the plan right now is we are going to be recording at. So here, 1 p.m. East uh, Central Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, United States. London Time would be 7 p.m. Yeah, they're about seven hours ahead of us. Right. So Berlin, Berlin would be 8 p.m. And for Sydney, for Theo, unfortunately, he's going to have to get up early. It's going to be 6 a.m. the next day for him. But that's pretty much the only time slot we have where we can get everybody kind of together at once. Uh, I am sure we are going to get somebody in Kuwait who's going to complain that it's too late for them. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, there's 24 time zones. You can't accommodate everybody. No, that is the plan. So if you're listening to this episode, you have two weeks notice on Monday, December 27th. We're going to be recording at a different time, hopefully to be able to get some callers from different areas of the world to join. And, uh, and that should be a lot of fun to, to talk to some people over in Europe. But um, as always, thank you guys again. Remember okay. to check out the camera. We have both a page and what is it? Um, a group is a page and a group. Somebody was confused about that. The group is where you can communicate with all the different people. Uh, the page is just when like me, Paul, Theo or Anthony responds to you. So if you, if you find the page, you want to make sure you find the group. I don't know if there's a better way to differentiate between the two, but somebody did ask me that they were confused about that. So join the camera Instagram group. We have the Instagram group. Uh, We have a lot of different ways to interact with people. Uh, If you have any questions you want for us, you could just email us. What's the email address, Theo? It's um, camerosity.podcast at gmail.com. Yeah, we set up a Gmail account and um, we registered a premium Zoom account that Paul graciously uh, forked over the dough for. So thank you for that, Paul. Uh, it allows us to have better flexibility with recording these these episodes on Zoom for the next year. Um, but thanks again, everybody. Um, this will be the last show we do before Christmas for those of you who celebrate that or Boxing Day or whatever other holidays you have. Uh, so happy holidays and thanks everybody for joining. Have a good night. 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 My wife just asked if I was recording, so everybody's helping me out with that one. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Matt.